1: Social media platforms in a competitive commercial landscape require our constant attention. The longer you stay, the more you are susceptible to promoted content and ads. The best way to keep you there is to outrage and incite you. Anger feeds content. Content feeds revenue. Muslims that engage on social media often contribute to the online antagonism that reflects the coarse and crude trends of wider society. It goes like this. Someone tweets a view, sometimes coherent and thought through, and sometimes not so. And within a short space of time, it solicits a torrent of abuse and angst. Before long, we feed off each other's outrage, borrowing anger and calling for retribution. This atmosphere leaves little for nuance, for clarification and engagement. Worse still, social media engagements help to engender a sense of disunity with which our ummah is now plagued and benefits those actors that want to sow division within our ranks. If policy makers want to exacerbate divisions in our communities, Muslims on Twitter and Facebook are low-hanging fruits. This past week I've witnessed such problematic social media disputes. A sister sent a tweet about women becoming hufars. Maybe she could have phrased the message better and crafted it in a different way, but we're all guilty of that. Within time, she received a torrent of anger. Her point was lost. Any meaningful clarification was drowned out and she became another victim of the contrived cancel culture. We see these types of debates all the time. A scholar sends out a message and before long his views are ridiculed with little consideration of Allah subhanahu wa taala's limits. Somehow, we think our timelines are exempt from the angels' records. Sending people to the stocks did not start with social media. The Muslim ummah today is undermined by its disunity, but certainly this acrimony is amplified by the anonymity of the medium, where an expert is ranked equally to a layman and abuse, defamation and slander are a sure route to likes and followers. This week on the Thinking Muslim podcast, we look at Muslim Twitter. What causes this bitterness? How do we tone down the rhetoric? And how can the revelation and our illustrious scholarly past help us to rectify our manners of engagement? I have invited Justin Parrott to discuss this matter with me. Brother Justin holds an MRS in Islamic Studies from the University of Wales and is currently a research librarian for Middle East Studies at New York University in Abu Dhabi, and he's also a volunteer imam for the Muslim Students Association. He also runs an amazing website with a unique accessible hadith repository. You can find him by going to his website address in the description of this program. Justin Parra, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast.
0: Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah, wa barakatuh. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Wa yakum. Now, Justin, I invited you really to discuss uh, Muslim Twitter and, and the general interaction of Muslims on social media. Uh, the impression I get is it's a, a pretty messy place. And um, I read a tweet from you a few uh, weeks back uh, looking at or reflecting on the, the debate that takes place within uh, the Muslim Twitter realm and how those debates are sometimes quite problematic. And in a way, uh, some of your thoughts are corded with mine. I mean, I think you expressed quite succinctly into words, uh, your current problem with uh, Muslim engagement on social media.
0: Sure. Uh, so as I was thinking about this, um, just from my perspective, I just feel like there's a lot of negative content on um, social media. So uh, there's there's all kinds of negativity on there, and there's things that are unfair. There's things that are untrue. Uh, there's backbiting. So maybe you are, people are talking about somebody in a negative way, but you know that, that's actually backbiting. The, the things they wouldn't say to that person's face. Um, there's also misinformation. There's also fake news. There's also um, horrible things happening everywhere in the world that we don't have control over. And we're exposed to all of that, to all of that content. So at least my strategy in using social media and trying to benefit from it is to kind of curate your timeline, uh, to making sure that you're getting good, positive uh, content from people who put that stuff out reliably and just not to let yourself be exposed to the negativity and the things that are, uh, going to make, those are going to affect you. They're going to affect you in a negative way. If you keep looking at that stuff. Um, another part, uh, when I was thinking about this is that, um, and other people have talked about this, and this is not just for Muslims, but this is happening sort of on the internet culture is what they call the outrage, the cancel the call out culture so um there's a culture of sharing outrageous content, and that's people either being provocative because they want to get a response and get the attention, or that's people who are sharing the outrages of somebody else, and uh you know they get then they go viral that way so So this has kind of happened in the culture and there's a lot that people have talked about this and and, uh, I think it's just part of the nature of social media. It just lends itself to this type of uh, content that that goes viral. So I have a link here to a a study that was done by an Italian university Um, and they did multiple languages and they looked at what is the type of content that goes viral on social media. And they said that the type of content content that goes viral on social media are things that cause arousal and dominance. So these are the two psychological terms. So they cause arousal and dominance. So these types of emotions that are, that are arousal and dominance. So an emotion that is uh, causes arousal is like, for example, disgust content on social media goes viral because it disgusts people. So people see something outrageous and then, Also, anger. Anger is a dominant emotion. So, you know, this is in contrast to fear. So, fear is a submissive, submissive emotion that makes you want to withdraw, retract, kind of move away, to leave things. And anger makes you want to fight, right? So that's a that's a dominant type of emotion. That's what that means here. So, things that make you angry and things that make you disgusted are the things that go viral on social media. And of course, there's the happy stuff, and you know, cat videos and things like that. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that kind of content, but um, you know, this is this is where the outrage can't cancel call-out culture comes from because uh, of the nature of things that go viral. It incites those negative emotions in people, and that's what makes them click on it, share, comment on it. And then, as you know, social media companies want you to comment, like, share as much as possible on the on the on the forum. Or on their platform, so uh, that type of content, they're going to allow that stuff to go viral. You know, I mean, they'll, they'll try to block fake news and stuff. We'll say that, but uh, so this is just part of the nature of, of the platforms, so um, if we understand that, then we need to uh, figure out that if we're going to use these tools, we have to curate our timelines. We have to make sure that we're not being misled by misinformation and fake news that we're not being exposed to things that are designed to provoke a negative response from us. Um, you know, uh, I, I, try to follow them with some scholars and Islamic pages and they're putting out positive content, maybe some health news and like regular news and, um, uh, you know, other kind of, you know, mindfulness psychology pages. I follow that kind of stuff on Twitter. So all that stuff is stuff that doesn't make me angry and, uh, uh, combative, right? So um, and try to try to try to have the good content coming into your page if you're going to be using these things. And then one more point I want to make um, about the online environment is because that we have this phenomenon okay. phenomenon that we call trolling. So this is when somebody goes into a forum or into a page or into an online space and they go there to deliberately incite anger and to get a negative rea- reaction out of people. Now uh, the, the, you got to understand where the term trolling comes from. So trolling is a fishing term. So that's when you put multiple lines of bait on the back of your boat and then you just you drag it along. you're trolling the fish because you're trying to bait the fish. So that's where online trolling, that's where that term comes from. So a troll is somebody who goes into this online space, you know, commenting under a Facebook post or a Twitter post or on a YouTube video or something like that. Uh, and they want to make people angry, and they want to say something outrageous so that they're getting that that, that kind of negativity, and people enjoy that. I mean, the the online trolls, they enjoy that going in and making making people upset. So there's just a lot of negative content out there. There's a culture that has arisen out of the way that things go viral, you know, uh, that are provoking these negative emotional responses, and then you have people who kind of feed off that. And uh, do that deliberately. They want to make people upset, so they're not trying to enlighten people or spread beneficial information. They're going to go in and they're going to quote own the libs or you know whoever their their target is. They're going to they're going to go in and um, attack that group and make those people upset. So uh, that's why it can be a negative experience for a lot of people. And I think this is why a lot of my, I'm not the only one who's concerned about. Um, "Quote unquote Muslim Twitter and what, what is going on there and what is said there," um, and, but I think it's the nature of the platform. I don't think that we can change that. It's just that's the the platform kind of pushes us towards that trend, and we have to buck that trend if we're going to use these tools in a positive way. That's how I would put into words sort of the unease that I feel with. Uh, Being on
1: social media? I mean, social media is a very difficult minefield to navigate around, and I think I'm sometimes concerned about young people. Uh, They're constantly connected to uh, social media channels and they feel they constantly have to apply themselves to those channels, and that must take a lot of bandwidth away from that individual who uh, is trying to pursue education or trying to pursue their lives. If they're having to engage with uh, with people on on uh, these networks
0: yeah and and I honestly uh I you know I started uh, I started a Facebook page for the Hadith and then you know people like that so then I created the website to support the Facebook page that was like my main platform I was sharing Hadith and then it kind of built up into these different platforms that I do now and I don't feel like uh it would be right by the people who uh, appreciate my content for me to just pull the plug Uh, on all that stuff Um, I mean I don't like social media honestly and I wouldn't be on there if I didn't have to be or if I didn't feel like it was my responsibility to kind of put some positive content out there Um, so it does make me uneasy I don't read it often I try to maybe look at it Twitter once or twice a day and look at Facebook once or twice a day I haven't even bothered with looking at Instagram um, I post stuff there, but I just don't have the, the time or the effort to figure that platform out. And I post some stuff on YouTube and then I just check it regularly right, just to make sure people have not left uh, nasty comments, which tends to happen. Um, so I have these platforms and, you know, I don't really like them. I don't use them for, for recreation like a, a lot of people do. I don't rely upon it. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to scroll through my feed for more than 15 minutes at a time and doing that maybe twice a day at most. Um, but I like to post positive content out there and then it's taken me a, a while to figure out how to use all the tools to get to that point where I feel like I have a, a good social media strategy that works for me and is trying to be positive. I'm glad that we're having this discussion because I do think that we need to, you know, social media use is probably unavoidable for a lot of people, and then we need to use, know how to use these tools uh, to get the most out of them, to make them work for us.
1: Does it reflect a wider problem within the Muslim mindset? We find it very difficult to navigate through our differences. And so has has social media not just amplified our inability to, to debate in a in a civil way with one another?
0: Um, well, it's really revealing a lot of what was already there. So we're just more exposed to the types of negativity that have always been there. So in some things, in some ways, things haven't changed. Um, and these are just reflect us becoming more aware through this connectivity of, of the way people debate and have these conflicts. Um, but I think in some ways, it's also amplified. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Because um, first of all, Uh, at least on Twitter and YouTube, you can be anonymous and on Facebook you can, you're supposed to use your real name, but you can be an unknown person. Like you don't, you you don't really have to use your real name. This anonymity allows people to say things without any inhibition or consequences at all. So uh, it would be, you know, before the internet, there was social pressure. You know, if you got up in the masjid and you started berating your imam, other people would, would be around you to stop you or to shame you or to, run you out of there, you know, there was a social pressure and there was a consequence for you saying outrageous things or provoking conflict in public spaces, right? Uh, now, on the internet, when, you know, you have an anonymous, you have a lot of these anonymous Twitter accounts, some of them are fake, by the way, right. uh, uh, they're robots, uh, but, but some of them, you know, they're anonymous people on Twitter, so they say whatever they want and they rip on this email and they, they you know, attacking this person and you know they're going after everybody and they're saying things that they know uh, are going to offend people and are going to be viewed as outrageous and uh, there's no consequence for it at least uh, in the dunya you know Allah is watching all this and the angels are recording everything that we do Uh, but there's no worldly consequence because it's an anonymous account there's no one to to uh, shame that public that person's public reputation or whatever whatever consequence there should be for the things they say. So because of uh, people can be anonymous on the internet, they're saying things that they wouldn't normally say and then there's no sort of ordinary social pressure that would prevent people from saying this kind of stuff. So that's that's a factor I think that has amplified it and sort of made it worse or made that made conflicts worse. And then another um, problem or reason why I think that has amplified uh the, the, the conflicts in society is because what develop, what, de- what happens is that they develop or people develop internet subcultures. So these are uh, online spaces of like-minded users who share the content they re- agree with. And this is on the so-called alt-right. So, you know, sort of extreme conservative and the so-called alt-left. It's sort of extreme liberal or progressive. So there's, there's these spaces on both sides and there's different Muslim spaces and all different kinds of little uh, online spaces where people go to for like-minded content and then they're not really exposed to opposing views and they they exist in what we call echo chambers so you know everybody's just saying the same thing to each other Uh, they also say living in a bubble so to speak Um, so they go in there and then they get you know they're exposed to this, I don't know if it rises to the level of propaganda, but they're exposed to this content that kind of only shows them one side of the world, and and it even might be a distorted view, um, and then they go out, and then they might interact online with other people who are in a different echo chamber, and then those people clash, and there's no way for them to, to kind of see what each other's perspective, and then also another reason that this is uh, why why this promotes conflict is because the personal element has been uh, removed. So you're just uh, you're just communicating through texts and pictures. You're not seeing a person's facial expression, their nonverbal communication. Um, uh, there's all types of nonverbal cues and and ways that you communicate to people and re- reach out, connect to people that are nonverbal, non-text based types of communication, and all of that is removed from social media, and even email as well. So I actually wrote an article for a library science journal about uh, when I mentioned that, um, how to use an email effectively. And one of the one of the problems with that is that you have to have a personal connection with the person that you are emailing so that they can pick up your tone inflection uh, different cues, expressions, and, and they know who this person is that they're talking about. Anyway, so I, I, that was just an article I wrote. But yeah, so that, that's why communication through social media is difficult, because and a lot of people, they wouldn't say what they say on social media to someone in their, to their face. Yeah, so it, so in that way, I think that the, the fault lines that are out there, they kind of reflect fault lines that have always been there. I mean, people have always kind of thought this way uh and had these types of conflicts but it's just it's changed and and in some ways amplified because of the reasons that i that i mentioned
1: and justin to what extent um is our use of of social media a reflection of the wider trend in in western liberal societies? we now have deeply polarized societies in britain we have you know the brexiteers and the remainers as you may know and and again these these fault lines have, have become deeply embedded in, and to what extent are we a are we merely a byproduct of that sense of uh that sense of acrimony that exists at the moment in 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 wider western culture
0: um i i don't know if i'd say we we're a byproduct but i'd say that we are our community develops in parallel to sort of the broader trends in secular society so as you said, the, the fault lines now are, uh, between it's, it's even hard to kind of draw this because the old conservative liberal, those don't really, it's kind of more complicated than that, but let's just say that for right. you have people on the right wing and the conservative wing, and then you have people on the left wing and conservative wing and they're, they're divided over a number of issues. Um, and you have extreme polls, and then you have a lot of people in the middle. So you have the alt-right, uh, and those people are extreme on immigration and uh, things like that. And you have the alt-left, and those people are, have, a, have a very strong view of socialist policy that needs to be implemented or, or however. And, so, and then these people exist, as I mentioned earlier, in their online spaces where they're sharing like-minded content, and they have a difficulty engaging with other people. And connecting with other people in a real sense. So we see that that trend is kind of happening in the wider secular society. And then the fault lines that are existing now, at least on the uh, on quote unquote Muslim Twitter or on uh, uh, you know at least Muslims online, is that you know you have Muslims who have a have a, a view of politics that uh, I would say maybe hardline politics, and then you have uh, uh, Muslims that are uh, more influenced by the liberal side and then you have a lot of people in the middle. Um, so I think in some sense, it, it, it parallels the, 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 fault lines of the wider society. We have, I guess, I guess you would say, and this is very simplified, but, but uh, progressives and reactionaries. So progressives are mm-hmm. trying to, um, you know, they have these ideas and the you know, they want humanity to progress and they want, um, things to get better and they, they have these ideas and this relates to their economic policies, culture, whatever. And have reactionaries, people want to go back and say, Oh no, things are getting worse. We need to go back. Right. So it, hmm. you have both sides of that uh, kind of view. And I think, and that's just a super simplified way of putting it. I mean, uh, uh, it, it's just hard to, to do the whole thing justice and just uh, by a couple of terms, but I, uh, I, I, I do think we parallel the trends in the broader society because I mean we 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 are we are influenced by broader society and we can't we can't say that we're not and that's not necessarily um, bad. We're just we're just we're human beings. We all we have there are common human cultures and we exist in them. And some of those things can be accommodated by Muslims and some things we need to reject as Muslims. But uh, you know we're we're going to go. We're going to be affected by the way the, the wider society is going. So they're moving in this in this way with the secular politics right. uh, uh, of the reactionaries and the progressives, and then you know those fault lines are now why they appear among Muslims as well.
1: Now, um, uh, if if uh, the lack of civility exists in in wider society when it comes to political and intellectual discourse, and we see that reflected as you say in in Muslim society, um, is there a uh, a place, a space for revelation here, because, of course, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala revealed this uh, Quran as a uh, as a way of measuring and as as a way of dealing with the challenges human beings face, and and these challenges are not restricted to time, but this revelation is eternal and it it will be with us until Yom Al Uh and so how can we uh, gain inspiration or guidance uh, from revelation when when trying to uh, navigate around this sort of level of acrimony and debates that, that exist and persist in, in Muslim discourse?
0: Great. That's a great question. And uh, I'd like to go a little bit in depth on that. I have some notes here. So, um, well, first of all, I, I had this, wanted to make this point earlier, that um, social media, it makes you feel like you need to react to everything that you see on social media, and they want you to, the companies do. Hmm. You don't have to react. Like you don't have to comment on everything. You don't have to denounce every evil that is out there. It's just, it's just not even in our capacity to do that. Like, and a lot of the times it's just a waste of time, and it's not changing anybody's minds. It's wasting our time. We can do something better than fighting people on Facebook or Twitter. So we don't have to react to everything. We don't have to debate everything. And some things you just have to let go. Um, anyway, but so back to what we were saying. Like, what are the guidelines? What are the guidelines of debate or disputing and how we talk to each other? So uh, Imam al-Ghazali, he has uh, in his book of knowledge, in the the famous work of his, he lists conditions for the permissibility of debate so that a Muslim, if they're going to, if they're going to debate another Muslim on a theological, he's talking mostly about theology or law, Uh, But if they're going to debate a Muslim about another issue, they have to fulfill these conditions or else they're they're not debating for the sake of Allah, he says. So the first one is that that you want to have a sincere intention to find the truth. And even if the truth is coming from that other person. So if you're debating something, the intention isn't to win or to, quote, destroy that person, which is the way... You know, they make all these videos on YouTube of somebody's destroying somebody in a debate. And we don't have that in Islam. Uh, if you're going to debate in Islam, it has to be to find the truth. And uh, Imam Shafi'i, rahimahullah, he um, has this famous statement that he said, he debated people. He debated, like, uh, um, other, other sects and, and things like that. And he said, I never debated anybody, but that I did not care if the truth came from their tongue or mine. Right. So what he's saying is that, um, if his opponent said the truth, he would acknowledge that truth, Right. And so he, he wasn't trying to shame these people. He wasn't trying to destroy these people, uh, or humiliate them. He was just trying to get at the truth. And if they said something, if it was true, he would accept it. Right. And he wanted them to acknowledge the truths that he was saying. Right. So um, uh, Al Ghazali quotes that, and that's a really important uh, uh, piece of this whole thing. Uh, some other conditions, he says, make sure you're not neglecting the important faraid or the far the obligations. So uh, you know, if you haven't taken care of your personal obligations, then you shouldn't be debating. If you, if there are more important communal farad kifaya obligations. And those are not being met and you're out debating with these people, then you need to go take care of those things. So uh, he's sort of like saying, get your priorities in order. Like you have to do the most important things. And like a lot of people waste their time with these debates and they could be doing something more important. So, so that's a, a that's a, another big piece. And then he says, this is, this is important uh, that the people who are debating, they should have itch jihad in they should have the capacity to perform ish jihad in their area of expertise. So that means they mm-hmm. should be able to think independently of authority of authorities in their chosen field. So, like a mushtahid and fit is somebody who can derive rulings of Islamic law on their own from the text sources from the usul, right? So that's a really high level of scholarship, and then and then we can transfer that to other uh, expertise as well. I mean. The the academic debates that happen like in forums, you know, uh, in Cambridge or whatever, wherever uh, they're between experts, right? And people who are recognized as experts in their field. Uh, so that's what a debate should be. It should be between people who are able to think independently in their field, not just people who are quoting others. Because then, if you're just quoting others, you're not debating. You're sharing two other people's opinions, right? Uh, and those people aren't there to debate or clarify or however, so uh, you should be, so if you're gonna debate, you should be an expert in what you're debating, right? So that that's another important important piece. And then he says the matter should be practical. So uh, he didn't like for people to uh, argue about theoretical issues that might happen. So like some le- some hypothetical legal case that might come up, he didn't like people to debate those things. He, you know, if you debate something, it should be practical. It should be an actual case that is that needs an answer. So he didn't like to kind of just um, debate for things that have no practical purpose or implication. And then he says the debate should be between learned people from whom benefit is derived. Okay, that's another important thing. So when you have when you have two good scholars and they're both benefiting people and they're debating an issue, we can watch it, we can learn from both of them because they're both gonna bring good points, right? And then so that's when a debate is beneficial, right? When both people are uh, making beneficial points and they're, they're good scholars, they're known for, for being, um, being good for the Muslim community, putting out good information, good message, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's when a debate is positive because then both of the people bring their views of the truth together and then you can synergistically kind of create, uh, you know, a, a better understanding of the truth that comes from those two people in dialogue. Right. So that's, um, that's another big point. Right. So, uh, and, and this is, and I'll just say here, this is not from you, Al- but this is something that I've learned and what I've uh, you know, picked up from people who have tried to debate. Uh, I guess the neo-fascists and people like that. And the, and the the way that you win debates with them is not to debate them, because they're uh, uh, because they're dishonest. And when I'm talking about true neo-like Nazis and and, and people who have these really extreme uh, ideologies and anti-immigrant and um, you know, racist, in fact. Uh, and those those people are not honest actors. They're, they don't argue in, in good faith. So they argue in bad faith, and they don't care about the facts, and they're not trying to get the truth. So don't argue with those people. And uh, because you argue with them, and you're legitimizing their platform, right? And you're just allowing them to spread their views even farther, right? So uh, if, if you are certain that a person is a bad actor who argues in bad faith, then do not debate them. Right, you can respond to them on your own platform, and you should. Uh, you respond to them in writing or make a video, but not including them, because they, if they're going to lie, then you, if you debate them, you give them a platform to spread their lies. Okay, so um, you should not debate people like that. So I, so a lot of some of the debates out there, they're debating really questionable people, and like I'm not going to debate an Islamophobe, somebody who i don't think cares about what islam really teaches or uh somebody who has some other uh views that i feel are in bad faith i'm not going to debate those people i'm not going to go give those people a platform and i'm not going to allow those people to share uh, their dishonest views on my platform okay so i wouldn't debate those people i would debate somebody who maybe was my friend but obviously if i was in areas that i'm competent to discuss. I would debate, some, debate somebody who is my friend or colleague who I might disagree with but who um, through our dialogue I would intend to kind of have a better understanding of the truth and they might change my views and I might change their views uh, but the goal isn't to win or destroy or humiliate the goal is to get a better understanding of the truth by two people coming into dialogue and sharing their perspective. So yeah so he says these are the conditions for debate and if you understand this then you can tell who's debating for the sake of Allah and who's debating for the sake of like their nefs or their lower self, right? Or for their some other ulterior motive, right? So that's the criteria of what makes a debate Islamic, like, like he puts these uh, conditions there. And then he lists several evils of debate uh, or several more things that he's warning about. Uh, and then and I'll just list those, he said uh, debates um, they provoke envy, so you you, know, you hate the other person that that you're that you're debating, and they might you know they might uh, you know for whatever reason you're just you jealous of them, and you want them to kind of be deprived of their blessings. That, that that's what envy means. Uh, pride is another danger, so being arrogant, uh, saying something arrogant, A rancor. So hiqad is uh, when you uh, just stubbornly refuse to forgive somebody, uh, and you have kind of just holding this hatred in your heart, like having a grudge. So um, you know these bitter debates produce that, and that is spiritually uh, ruinous and dangerous to have that. To have that in your heart, to have this kind of rancor in your heart. Uh, backbiting is is a, is a result of debate. So remember, backbiting is to say something about negative about somebody that you wouldn't say to their face or that they would be displeased if you said it to their face. Um, And and that's a serious sin in Islam. And there's people that go to the hellfire just because they did that. Even if it's truthful, right? Because you're attacking the reputation of that person without a right. Now the scholars, of course, they give uh, exceptions to that rule. So for example, if somebody is really out there spreading dangerous ideas and we respond to them in public, that's not backbiting. Uh, If somebody is proposing to another person in marriage and you know that person's a bad person and you tell them that's not backbiting. So if there's any reason where like the public good overrides this rule, then that's not backbiting and you're allowed to say that. But I'm going to say that that is the exception. That is not the general rule. So the general rule and the safest thing for us is not to just speak badly about any Muslim, right? Or any kind of any person, any normal person who's not like an evil person. Uh, it just just don't even get into the habit of it right cuz what people do is they they see oh this is the exception to the rule and oh I'm justified in saying this and this and this and this and then they get in the habit of backbiting and maybe they did it a few times it's permissible but then you get into that habit and then you're just you're going to get you're going to transgress that habit and you're going to fall into the sinful backbite. So just don't even make it a habit, right? Let's follow the general rule. Let's just not speak badly about anybody and let's not make it a habit, right? And let's not indulge in that. Cause then if right. you indulge in it, you're going to, even if you, at the beginning you're justified, you're eventually going to transfer. Um, these are the evils of debate that we need to watch out for. And the other one is self-righteousness or uh, was basically like um, claiming tesquia for yourself, claiming that you're pure spiritually. So uh, you're pure spiritually, and you're righteous so much that you can look down on these people and and you uh, be arrogant to them and dismiss them and things like that. And that's that's a that's another sin, you know. Uh Allah says in the Quran, right? Do not claim purity for yourself. Uh, and that's just being self-righteous. In English, we say some somebody's being self-righteous because they're acting so so much better than other people. And then the new term for that is virtue signaling people say so people go out and denounce people in a way that makes them look good right so uh, we got to watch out for that right uh then another evil of debates uh, that we have to watch out for is fault finding so that's where you're nitpicking somebody and maybe they have that fault uh but you know you shouldn't be publicizing that or you're nitpicking at them uh the messenger of allah said (inaudible) ruined are the hair splitters ruined are the nitpickers these people who they just like, uh, yeah, attack people for really small details, make big, de- make a big deal about really small things, uh, and use that to um, attack somebody's reputation. Uh, so fault finding, like, um, you know, and there's another hadith. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, said that if if somebody exposes another person's faults, Allah will expose his fault. And that's of course not when the public good is involved. Like if you, if somebody is uh, harming the public good, then you can bring that out mm-hmm. in order to, for the best interest of the public. But, you know, if somebody's just like got bad character or, you know, they're lazy or whatever, you just don't go around telling telling people how bad they are. Oh, look how lazy this guy is or, uh, you know, how, whatever he did, whatever his flaw is, right? You just cover that up, right? Because you want a lot of cover your faults on the day of judgment as well. So don't nit- nitpick people for their faults or try to find faults with them, that's an evil uh, consequence of debate. And then um, hypocrisy is a consequence of a debate. So when you say something with your tongue that is not truly in your heart, um, that's a that's a danger of debate. Uh, rejecting the truth. So if the mm. truth comes from that person and then you reject it just because you are you feel you're above that person or you want to destroy that person or you have some other kind of intention, people who debate and they want to win the debate. They tend to want to reject the truth from their opponent, and um, that's a very dangerous thing, right? Because that's the definition of arrogance. According to some of the sell is to reject the truth because you feel like you're above the other person, right? Um, And then lastly, showing off. So, you know, people debate to flatter themselves or to be flattered by others, um, to look cool in front of other people. And then also dishonesty. So people who want to just win the debate, they're going to be dishonest in the way they present facts in the way they don't acknowledge the truth of the other person. Um, and that's just another big pitfall of the debate. Of the debate. So this is a really good um, section of uh, I believe it's translated into English as part of the book of knowledge, uh, which is at the beginning. So he puts these conditions for the, the debate. This is what needs to be these need to be the conditions for an Islamic debate. And then these are the evils that come from a debate that is insincere. It's not for the sake of Allah. And then there's all these uh, things that come from it.
1: I mean, this is amazing advice from Imam Ghazali. How do we relate this advice to our present situation?
0: I think that um, after you know, really internalizing and understanding these things that Imam Ghazali is talking about, that you can see a lot of people are not debating for the sake of Allah or at least that's what it appears like. And, um, you know, we wanted to make sure that we're not doing that as well. Oh, and lastly, one more point, and I cited this in my thesis about uh, treating others the way you want to be treated. The so Imam al-Ghazali says envy is a serious danger of, um, uh, of debating because then a person doesn't love for the other what they love for themselves. Right? So when, when you are debating somebody, you should love for them what you love for yourself, and so think about yourself being in that person's shoes. And like, if you were if you were born in that household and you were exposed mm-hmm. to those ideas and you had been given those things in your life, would you be any different from them? And um, uh, and, and how? And if and if you were saying you, that you think that person's misguided, you know, why? Uh, how would you like to have the Tao approach you? Like, would you want someone to come and be harsh with you about the truth, or would you want someone to be gentle with you and trying to guide you to the truth right so and that's just important for everything that we do is always try to treat others the way you want to be treated, try to imagine yourself in the other person's shoes what it's like to be the other person and if I was that person, how would I want them to treat me? That's just a good question to always ask yourself
1: that's a really um yeah that's what what you described there for me, Ghazali, are. Uh, are some excellent guidelines that we need to employ when when thinking about entertaining debates in particular on, on social media. I want to pick up on some of those and and um in particular the point you make about expertise and, and the ulama being in a greater position to to influence uh heretical thoughts or problematic thoughts that may pervade a Muslim community um isn't there a possibility here that uh we're promoting uh an elitism when it comes to knowledge and and uh and truth right um especially at a time where often uh ulama uh, do promote uh ideas and ideals or political opinions which are uh which are very problematic um i mean we have seen in in the last few years uh, Ulema of great repute that would justify war in Yemen, uh, we would see that. Um, I remember at the time of uh, some of the, the most, uh, you know, horrible interventions of the Sisi regime on on protesters, peaceful protesters on the street of Egypt, uh, that uh, Azhar would give uh, Fatawa which would justify uh, the killing of of Muslim brothers, right? and and so we find that uh, ulama are in very powerful positions are responsible for some great misdeeds and and um uh if we uh, depend upon uh that sector to uh to to highlight the the um, the evil then that may not be forthcoming for all sorts of reasons you know there may be there may be political pressure uh, you know as you can see in, in in a number of muslim countries that are that that uh, impress upon ulama to stay uh, in line and 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 to and to be be quiet. So, what is our responsibility in in, in as lay people uh, in in the political context we find ourselves in?
0: Well, I mean that's that's a difficult question, and I don't think there's an easy answer. But um, I would say you know there are scholars who do take problematic positions, and that may be as you suggested that. Ah, uh, are pressure to do so by the government, or um, for a number of other reasons, and maybe they think this is the lesser of two equals or or whatever. They might have a reasoning for that. Yeah, those are problematic, and I don't think that any scholar is above question, and that we just need to un uh, just uncritically follow anybody. Um, but uh, we we do have to rely on the process of peer review or the the, uh, I guess, process, okay, process of peer review. So, like, if those scholar, scholars are out of line, where are the other scholars going to step, step up and try to correct them and do so with the best manners and in the best way, right? And then we take the cues from those people, right, or from those scholars, right? So we have to have a relationship with the scholars, and even those scholars that take problematic political positions, that doesn't mean that what they're teaching about the religion itself is incorrect, and that you can't benefit from that, right? So we shouldn't cancel anybody because they're they're taking a position on this conflict or they're taking a position on this ruler or anything. Because that doesn't mean that the other things that they're saying about the religion is false. It's just they've come to this conclusion that is problematic, and they can be criticized for it. And we should let other scholars criticize them for it. But we cannot separate. We cannot sever the relationship between the laymen and the scholars. And there has to be trust between the layman and the scholars, and because if we just open that up to let the the to let lay people uh, make their own decisions about uh, about who is canceled and who is not, and uh, we're going to lose the religion because you have to learn this religion from scholars. You have to take it from imams. You have to follow uh, one of the four imams or one of the mujtahid imams or you know expert imams. And um, you can't just, like, go back to the Quran and Sunnah and derive all of Islam by yourself. Again, it took generations to build up the scholarly heritage that we have, and we have to make use of that. And I don't think, and I think canceling people is, 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 a, is a real danger, because I know, I know who you're talking about. I know you're talking about these scholars, that they take these positions, and, and I disagree with it, and I think that it's wrong, and I don't really understand they may have a justification for it, and I don't get that. Uh, but I do know, also know that although they have taken these problematic positions, you can go learn uh, um, your atidah from them. You can learn how to pray from them. You can learn stories of the Sahaba and, and the Prophet wasallam and other scholars of Islam. You can get good things about Islam from those scholars, even though they have taken these positions, right? So I just don't want to – you don't want to just throw out uh, all these uh, – Scholars just because they take one or two bad positions or even it's a very bad position, you know, but like uh, They have whole bodies of work and a lot of their work might be very good, right? And But they've they've, uh, fallen short in this other area. So and, and we need a lot to forgive us right as well So I mean we want a lot to amplify our good and we want him to cover up our bad And I think we should do that with other people um, but then, if these people are going to be criticised, if these scholars who take these positions are going to be criticised, it should be by their peers who are other scholars, and then we can follow those cues.
1: Now what about the very uh, important Islamic uh, concepts of enjoining al-Ma'roof and forbidding mm. Um We know that uh, Islam placed a great emphasis on mm-hmm. the Muslim community Enjoying all that is uh, good and and uh, repelling all that is evil and and um, I mean Imam Ghazali dedicates uh, um, his uh, Ihya, a chapter in his Ihya, to the importance of these duties and um, uh, he he makes reference to many of the mm-hmm. classical scholars who would be speaking to laymen uh, and in Imam Shafi'i uh, for example I remember reading. Uh, was advising uh, an ordinary man, and um, the man was asking, "How do I uh, reach salvation?" And he listed a number of things, but at the top of that list, uh, he said, "You must uh, enjoin maruf and forbid munker." Right. So, how do we contextualize this very Islamic duty in light of of what you're saying and and the general discussion? Uh, that Muslims may have on on uh, on Twitter and elsewhere.
0: Yeah, good question. Um, so, uh, enjoying good and forbidding evil it is a pillar, or I'm not I don't want to say pillar. It's an important principle in the religion. Uh, it's um, it's a part of the religion for sure, and it's a duty. Like it's a farqiyah. It's a communal duty on Muslims to be able to speak up for what is right and to forbid what is wrong. So, but this has conditions, right? This not everyone is just out there to do this. Um, it has conditions, and the three conditions, and this is mentioned by Ibn Taymiyyah, الله, may Allah have mercy on him. And he, wrote, he wrote a book, Amr bin Ma'ruf, al He said, you know, a, a book on this very topic. And the, he mentions um, uh, a couple of scholars from the Salaf, uh, Thalri, and, and others, and they said that the conditions to enjoin and forbid evil is number one to have knowledge if you don't have the knowledge you can't enjoin good or forbid evil right number two is to have gentleness rift so the the scholar who is enjoining good and forbidding evil is using is doing it in a gentle way and is and if they they have to use force or um sternness they only do that to the measure that it's necessary right so being gentle and for joining good and forbidding evil. Remember Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says that to Musa is sending him to Pharaoh to speak to him, uh right, a, a mild word, speak mildly or easily, gently to Pharaoh, right. So w- when he's approaching him for the first time, speak gently to him, not come and just denounce him, harsh him. This is Pharaoh. This is Pharaoh, the tyrant, right. So gentleness, they said, uh, is the second one, and then patience. Uh, is the third one so knowledge is first you have to have knowledge before you do it so you have to have gentleness while you do it and you have to have patience after you do it because then when you're enjoying good and forbid evil you're going to get a negative reaction from people for whatever reason and you have to be patient in bearing like what they're going to do to you like they're going to abuse you or they're going to curse you or whatever you have to be patient with that and be patient and obedient obeying allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, in in that regard, so that means if, even if they attack you, you should kind of you should be forbearing. And if they curse you, don't curse them back, right? They insult you, don't insult them back. You have to have this patience, right? So these are the conditions of knowledge and joining good and forbidding evil: knowledge, gentleness, patience, right? It's mentioned by Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, and I'll tell you something that I learned. Um, and so I've been giving sermons for um, I don't know, almost ten years, maybe and um when I was starting out you know i'm am a young man, I was bold, and I wanted to speak out against things, right so I had a sermon and i uh i uh speaking out against something right and um some guy was really angry with me um brother came up to me as very angry uh afterwards, and um I believe I was right, and i probably and but I didn't say it, and I shouldn't have said it like that um But, you know, so uh, and I had a mentor at the time uh, and he told me, you know, when you go up to give the Jumu'ah khutbah, you have to make what you say self-evidently good. It has to be good in itself and it has to be good in the way you say it so that nobody can argue with you. Right. So when we go to advise people about something that they're doing wrong, you have to make what you're saying self-evidently good. Like if you are harsh and you and in in a degree that is not warranted and you and you're using foul language and you're not being fair or whatever they're not going to accept the advice right and they'll have a point to argue with you because they'll only say look you're being you're having bad manners right and so that's why you have to have good manners so uh, when you when you're enjoying good so uh, i want to mention this verse allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says ila bil hikmati Allah says, call to the way of your Lord with wisdom and with beautiful preaching. Beautiful preaching. And argue with them in the way that is better or the way that is best. And so this is really important because the message that we have there should be hasan, right? It should be beautiful, right? It should look good. And you, you want to you preach to people in a way that they will receive the message, right? Um, In a way that softens their heart and then opens up the message of Islam to them or the truth or whatever you're talking about, right? And then to argue with them in a way that is better, right? So uh, you don't want to, if they're insulting you, you don't insult them back, right? Uh, If they're using gutter language or if they're being dishonest or they're using some low tactic against you, you don't use go and do the same thing to them. You need to be above that. Your manners need to be better than theirs. Right. So these kind of dogfights, so to speak, on Twitter, where people are just cursing each other and just like throwing punches at each other. It's just not that's not a beautiful preaching to me. And you know, I don't think a lot of people respond well to that. You know, we as Muslims need to be better uh, and have better manners than the people that we're advising. I'll just say that the people who in scholars who are enjoying good and forbidding evil in the correct manner, they don't need to justify themselves and say, oh, I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying good and forbidding evil, right? Because people, this is what I've noticed, that, you know, people, um, they denounce something or something on Twitter or social media. They're denouncing it, you know, and then people are like, why are you such a, why are you such a jerk? Like, why are you so rude? Like, why do you have bad manners? And he's like, oh, I'm enjoying good and forbidding evil, right? And, and that's the sort of the excuse. And I don't doubt that they sincerely believe that they're enjoining good and forbidding evil, but do they know these conditions? And do they know, like, is this going to be the best for the people that they're trying to advise? Are they trying to advise them or are they trying to shame them in public, right? Because in Islam, we want to give people nasiha, which is advising them, preferably in private. And nasiha means that you uh, intend good for those people right? You want them to benefit from the advice you're giving them, right? And some people uh, just want to publicly shame and humiliate other people and say, oh, I'm giving you the Nasiha. right? That's not nasihat right? Because your intention was to shame in public this, and humiliate this person in public and ruin their reputation. And the intention was not to uh, bring them closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with that kind of bad advice, right? So what I'm trying to say is that the scholars who are doing this and are doing it in a good manner. They don't have to justify themselves and say, "Oh, I'm enjoying good and forbidding evil."
1: Now, that's a that's a very good point, and uh, we can learn a lot from uh, these conditions that you you lay out. Um, uh, do you not think that uh, the political context we live in is uh, is is extremely uh, problematic at the moment? Um, you know, we, we have a uh, a West uh, that. Uh, once um a west i mean you know even that term is is problematic but let, let's use it for for shorthand but believes that the only islam uh, that's acceptable would be a submissive emasculated islam and and there is certainly an agenda of varying degrees by varying countries but there is an agenda to uh, reform islam and to remove uh, what they would seem, uh, what they would term the problematic aspects of Islam, and, and in that endeavor, uh, a number of Muslims have uh, taken up that cause. Right um, now, of course, on the extreme, you've got the ex-Muslims, and I accept completely that you know ignoring them is probably the best approach. But also, you've got you know Muslims who are who are um, in that grey area. They're not they're not um, in by themselves, um, you know people who have got nefarious aims and objectives but they've taken in this project for for various reasons and and they've they've accepted uh that there needs to be a reformation of islam you know you have got this uh this reformation agenda and uh, there are different players muslim players in in this agenda and and maybe uh some of the Uh, the language you know and 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 i get i get your points and i agree with most if not all of your points but certainly uh, there is a danger of giving this agenda a free pass when we we emphasize adab of of discussion Uh, what's your what's your take on that
0: yeah so um you're right uh there is a reform project um you know there's academics in the west and there's liberal muslims Um, who want to change significant things about the religion. Now, that's a problem. I don't think it's an existential problem, like it's going to wipe us out. Uh, And so I don't want to give it too much importance, but it is something that I think we need to respond to. And I think a lot of scholars have, uh, for lack of a better word, quote, 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 traditional scholars have responded to this and, um, and, it's not that we whether we should respond or not we should it's just it should be done in the best way so some scholars have responded uh in the academic literature and other scholars have uh, responded in the popular forum um but you can uh counterbalance their views right so uh in the united states uh we had a um muslim feminist academic um and she said some Terrible things about uh, the Prophet Abraham, nice, and uh, we didn't. When we had some scholars uh, like Imam Zayd Shakir who gave a khutbah, and he didn't mention her, but he denounced the idea of what she said, and then he, you know he refuted it in his sermon. And you know this is dangerous when you are talking like this about Allah's messengers. But, and blessings be upon them right so i think we need to keep it in the realm of ideas so let's challenge the ideas we don't have to go after personalities right because this particular muslim feminist scholar she she has uh, colleagues who are going to repeat the same thing so if you take her down there's going to be others that are going to say the same thing right and and if you're if you're going after personalities and you're playing whack-a-mole right? You just, you whack one down and then another one's going to come up, right? So the, but if you take down the idea, then that counters what they're trying to promote, right? And then if you attack these personalities, if you attack them in a personal manner, it doesn't, and you know, the optics are just not looking good on that, right? And a lot of people who are on the fence and who don't know what's happening are going to respond sympathetically to the person who's being attacked, right? I've done this before, and I, I, I try to never do this, is to not attack people personally. Um, you know, there's just maybe really rare cases when that's called for. Uh, but most of the time, we need to keep it in the realm of ideas.
1: I mean, can adab be used to close down debate sometimes?
0: I, I understand that adab is used to sort of shut down debate. Like, I understand that they do that. But because people do that, just because people do that doesn't mean we should belittle the role of manners in Islam, right? And I want to mention, this is a really important quote from uh, Ibn al-Qayyim. He says, huwa kullu. He says, The entire religion is manners, right? The entire religion is manners. Because you have manners with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's your prayer, your du'a, your dhikr, your fasting, and your acts of worship. And then you have manners with people. And you're just like upholding people's rights and being a kind person and things like that right so all of the religion can be looked at through the view of manners right and then he says uh in the same book and he says the reality of manners is to behave with the, uh with beautiful character the reality of manners is to behave with beautiful character right And so it's to be jameel right the way we are behaving with people and that that is what wins hearts. It's not this harsh denouncing people. That doesn't win the hearts. But when you respond to people, even if they disagree with you, whether you do it in a beautiful way, and then they're just like, "Wow!" You know, like they will be amazed by that, right? And that you know might begin to start changing their mind, right? Because you were you were uh, being good to them, right? You had good manners with them, and this is that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala says, "Idfa' billatihi ahsan." is, uh, you know, repel the evil with good, right? And then the one who was your enemy will become your friend, right? So if you if you just uh, are evil on the same level as they are and you're using the same kind of language that they are, you're not going to win them over, right? And uh, that's not how people are persuaded. If your manners are better than them, right? Uh, then they'll start to listen to you. Right, and that will soften their hearts and open them up to the message of Islam.
1: Inshallah, and and finally, Justin, um, there is a need to popularize this adab uh, and this uh, way of of discourse that you speak of. Um, h- how do we do this? Um, I mean, I see many young Muslims who fall into the various traps that you've uh, uh, you've outlined today, uh, especially in the online, the anonymous online environment. Um, and, and, of course, this doesn't serve Islam very well. And so how do we, uh, how do we popularize uh, this way of thinking? Because it takes a lot for someone to to accept this approach to, to debate.
0: Right. Um, so I believe that the solution to this is in the model of our salaf. We need to study manners and knowledge I'm sorry, manners and good character and ethics as its own subject besides the other things. Besides al except for the basics in prayer and basic fiqh and things like that. I'm talking about people need to become experts in manners before they become experts in al creed, or theology, or law, or fiqh, or anything like that. Um, and he also has another statement I wanna mention. He said, and he's talking to ashabul hadith right? So at the time, there's the group, the people of Hadith, right? And they were kind of distinguished from the people of right or people of, like, I don't know how to translate that. People of opinions, not really the best translation, but the people who are of, of sort of rational logic kind of things. Uh, it was just two different s- schools of thought in Islam. There were the people who were more literalist and the people who were more about using legal principles to drive rules. So And, and those were kind of the Hanafis and the, Valleys and in between and so anyway so but he was around and so he was talking to ashabul hadith the people of hadith and he said Antum ila minal adabi ahwaju minkum ila kathirin minal he says you people of hadith are in need of you're in greater need of a little bit of manners than you are a lot of knowledge right you are in need of a little bit of manners more than you are in need of a, a lot of knowledge right uh, and this is an era when people were debating and, and and there were fault lines, right? So he's telling them, you know, it'd be better if you had manners than you've had, if you know a whole bunch of Hadith but you don't have manners, like, that's not very good for you, right? So if you knew less Hadith but you had more manners, that would be better, right? So um, I think that's how it has to be. And so uh, we need to sort of revive the, the study of manners. Um, so uh, like, so for example, Al-Ghazali, he has a book called Al, uh, Bidayat al-Hidayah. Bidayat al-Hidayah. it's translated into English. It's the beginning of guidance. And it's a really good book. And he explains in here, like, you know, okay, you want to become like a spiritual person. You want to become closer to Allah. and He's going to tell you how to do it. And he doesn't begin with akidah. he doesn't begin with the details of prayer. He begins with setting up your routine, right? This is the beginning of guidance, setting up your routine. So what is the adab of getting up in the morning? What is the adab of Fajr prayer? What is the adab of what you do between Fajr and Zuhr? What is the adab of when you're in your house? What is the adab when you eat, when you sleep, and so on and so on and so on, right? And um, the adab of, of the people that you surround you with and how you behave with them and the this and understanding the sins of the heart like envy right and and being aware of anger and being aware of uh, these kind of arrogance and spiritual things like that that you need to avoid so his whole what that book is all about is like okay you want to begin you want to be guided you have to begin with this edit right so um and, and that's a great book and i i go back to that book and uh, and I, I can't apply all that stuff. I mean, he, he maps out, like, the perfect routine that you would have and the perfect behavior that you would have, like, throughout your day, right? Perfect, you know, you wake up for Fajr, and you pray, and you're doing Quran, and you're doing beneficial things all day, and you go to sleep, and you're remembering Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, the whole time, and you're behaving with people well. He maps it out perfectly. I mean, it's really difficult to, uh, would, would be to implement all of it. So, I mean, just try to do, like, add little bits of it to my personal routine. Um, But that's where it begins. Like that's where the guidance begins. It begins in your personal behavior, right? And um, if you you have to have that personal behavior and that relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, you know, a routine of worship and an understanding of like the etiquette and the manners and the character values that are in Islam, you have to become an expert in those things before you can really be an expert and in other sciences, in a way that allows you to, to debate them with other people, because these debates with bad manners are just bad news for everyone. It's for the people involved and the people that are watching it. Right. So um, I think that we need to follow that kind of approach. Like it, 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 we, we need to focus more on manners. I mean, like what kind of routine that you have, like what kind of things should you be doing? throughout the day, what kind of worship, uh, extra acts of worship should we be doing in addition to the five daily prayers. Like, um, and getting people to see that this is, this is what an an Imam looks like. This is what Imam Malik looks like. This is what Abu Hanifa looks like. They would get up and they would pray and they would do this and they would be dhikr and, and they would do beneficial knowledge and they would study and they're doing everything good throughout their day. These are the Imams that we're supposed to follow and these are their personal routines. And we, we need to understand that this is how an imam is supposed to behave, this is how a good Muslim believer is supposed to behave, and try to implement that, that ourselves. And then when we do that, then we can move on to the the, the higher sciences of Islam. Uh, but it really starts with that basic thing, and I think that's what well, we have to drill that in to young people. And I know a lot of people aren't gonna accept that um, because they have a conception of Islam and you know, it's tied up with politics. It's tied up with Akita debates and things like that. And, you know, once you go down that rabbit hole, it's what we call a compound ignorance. that You have several misconceptions that layer each other. It's really hard to unwind all that kind of stuff. And and so people who have already gone down that rabbit hole and have this uh, misconception of Islam that, you know, they're promoting and they're, and they're very, they're very harsh in their approach and they're not beneficial in their approach. It's really hard to untangle all of those misconceptions and get them back to the beginning where they're just focusing on, on right? So, um, I don't know how to help those people, but, uh, uh, with our, with our youth, uh, we need to begin by showing them that this is the spiritual path. This is the adab that you would have. This is what a good Muslim, this is how they spend their day and what they do. Um, and uh, you know, get get popularizing Riyadh Salihain, for example, by Imam Manawi, uh Mufrad by Imam al-Qari, like these these books that were written just for the lay people to read the hadith about manners and things like that, right? So um, and then to be models ourselves, like we need to model the senior scholars because they're at the higher level than we are and they're in their behavior and their knowledge the living imams, but also the imams that passed away. we can read about them, uh, to model their behavior. And then we need to try and be a model for ourselves. So you know, I'm trying to be a model for my children. I try to model my online behavior for others. Um, and you know, I'm not a perfect person. I'm not going to say I'm a perfect example. I'm doing my best. Um, but you know, that's how we have, have to do it. Like, uh, and just drilling the importance of that. Like, manners isn't like a secondary thing like Ibn Al Qayyim says manners is the entire religion right and uh, al Ghazali, that was like the first that was the first thing that he's talking about he's writing a treatise on how to begin your guidance you begin it with adab right in your daily routine
1: Uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you for your time and your knowledge uh, today inshallah
0: i mean jazakala thank you
1: just one last announcement. Do remember to subscribe to this podcast and do leave a review on iTunes if you uh, listen to the program on iTunes. But until next week, wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.